0: Matthew chapter 5, in uh, chapter 4, the second half of the chapter that we saw last Lord's Day, um, we saw the commencement of Christ's public ministry, and now things are really in full uh, spring. And uh, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have... What is known as the Sermon on the Mount that is uh, introduced with the Beatitudes. So let's uh, read through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, and then, then we'll dive in. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The, the word of God. Um, before we dive in, actually, let me an- announce publicly that last Sunday when our uh, members gathered together uh, in our congregational meeting, we unanimously... Reconfirmed Ron Merrill and Nate Hall to the office of deacon, and I'd like us all to say thank you to them and praise the Lord. We uh, appreciate Ron and the Merrill family, we appreciate Nat, uh, Nate and the Hall family. We also appreciate our other two deacons, Adam Swanson and his family, and Alex Reinhardt and uh, his family. Um, without our deacons, without all of the servants and volunteers in our church, uh, we could not function. So we praise the Lord for that. All right, the Beatitudes. attitudes. Let's start off with a bit of an introduction. What is the setting for the Sermon on the Mount and the, the B attitudes? This is Jesus' Galilean ministry. Remember back in chapter 4 and verse 23, uh, Jesus was going throughout all the region of Galilee. And also from chapter 4 and verse 13, he had left Nazareth, his boyhood home, which is a city in the region, the district of uh, Galilee, and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, and uh, so this is naming some places to us. So here's our lay of the land again. Here's the Jordan River connecting the Dead Sea to the south in Israel and the Sea of Galilee to the north. This is the, the region of Galilee or the district of Galilee. Sorry for the shaking. That's what happens when it, it's windy around here. We love the building. It survived the earthquake, but it is susceptible to the wind. Uh, we usually hand out Dramamine in the front when you first come in, if you missed it, you might still get some. It's probably in this region, and the mount that Matthew referred to could either mean um, just the the, re- the mountainous region or the hilly region in general, or it could be a specific mountain, we actually don't know which exact mountain that is, but Still, according to church tradition, uh, this is it, the Mount of Beatitudes. And here you can see the Sea of Galilee in the background. And there's a pretty old Roman Catholic chapel here, actually, I think, from like the 1930s, so it's not that old. So that's the setting. And who's the audience? Well, in verses 1 and 2, Matthew says that, Uh, He saw the crowds and then he called his disciples to him. And uh, so then it's to the crowds and his disciples that he opened his mouth and taught them in verse two. So as I read this, it's the crowds and his disciples. So really there are potential disciples, the crowds, and then his actual disciples, Disciples, Which means that the intended audience includes all of us because we all fit in one of those two categories, potential disciples or actual disciples. There's no one who is excluded from the Sermon on the Mount. There's no one to whom the Beatitudes does not apply. This applies to all of us. What do the Beatitudes have to do with Jesus' message? Remember back in chapter 4 and verse 17, Matthew told us uh, he summarized Jesus' preaching ministry by saying, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a summary of Jesus' message not just before the Sermon on the Mount, but after the Sermon on the Mount and during the Sermon on the Mount. This is how the Apostle Paul characterized his preaching as well. He he preached repentance, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Jesus' message was characterized by repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, than what being of repentance. Another way to look at it is that the Beatitudes represent the culture of the kingdom of God. You want to know how people think and feel and interrelate in the kingdom of heaven? This is it in the Beatitudes. So, this is an elaboration of Jesus' preaching in Matthew 4 and verse 17. And then finally, what does it mean to be blessed? Because that's how every so-called beatitude begins. Blessed, 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 blessed. In fact, the name beatitude comes from the Latin word that translates the Greek word that Matthew actually used. Get all that? And that Latin word is beatitudo, and I'm sure I'm completely messing that up, but that was the Latin word. The Greek word that Matthew actually used is the word makarios. And sometimes that's loosely translated as as happy, happy are the poor in spirit, happy are are those who mourn, happy are the meek, etc. And that's not untrue, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because happiness is often uh, seen as an emotion that is tied to our circumstances. In other words, sometimes we're happy, and sometimes we're sad. And whether we're happy or we're sad often depends on our circumstances. But this blessedness, makarios, that Matthew writes about here is independent of our circumstances. It means possessing the favor of God or enjoying fullness from God. And it's not because of our circumstances, it's because of our relationship with God. This is not eight steps to earning your salvation, but it is what is the inner life like and how does God view that person with this inner life who has repented and is walking as a citizen in God's kingdom. In fact, another way to think of it is that this blessedness, these beatitudes, this blessedness that God promises is like heaven in our hearts. That's what it means to be blessed. So with that as a brief introduction, let's look at these eight so-called beatitudes. Sometimes they're referred to as nine, but the, the last two blesseds in verses 10 and 11 are really referring to the same thing. We'll see that when we get to it. So kingdom blessings, these are. And the fir- whoops, the first one is... Blessed are the poor in spirit, in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke, by the way, uh, in his version, in, uh, in, in his camera angle on the same event, only mentions poor, but Matthew adds poor in spirit, and that's certainly what Jesus said, and that's a very good qualification. Poor in spirit. That means those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt, beggars before God. Very much like Augustus Toplady's uh, famous hymn, uh, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the spirit that Jesus describes here. This is poverty of spirit. And it often does go hand in hand, this poverty of spirit. It often goes hand in hand with economic poverty, but not always. Being economically poor often forces a person into a place where they, they just don't have uh, the idols of riches to depend on rather than God. But still, haven't you met, haven't you heard of or seen poor people who, even though they're economically poor, they're still gripped with the love of money. You can be economically poor and still have a covetous heart. Be controlled by the love of money. And so this is primarily dealing with spiritual poverty. Notice God's blessing in the second half of verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A couple things there. Uh, This beatitude in verse 3, and then the last beatitude in verses 10 and 11, are the only two that are given to us in the present tense. Uh, The others... Uh, Beatitudes 2 through 7 are all given to us in the future tense. And so, the Beatitudes are bookended by these two present tense Beatitudes, and it's an illustration of what we've pointed out before when it comes to the nature of the kingdom of heaven. There's an already and a not yet element, uh, this dynamic, to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It's here, and everyone who is a believer is in the kingdom of heaven now, and yet we're not experiencing the kingdom of heaven to its fullness. One day we will. And in a similar vein, one day all of these beatitudes are going to be perfected in us. Not yet. But until that time, they are in us and manifested in our lives in principle to some degree, already, not yet. But another thing to point out here, how does this go together with Blessed are the poor in spirit. The the kingdom of heaven is God's antidote to our poverty in spirit. And the idea is, now we're poor. But in the kingdom of heaven, we are rich. And this reminds us of the fact that We are joint heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And because that's true, believers are rich beyond our wildest dreams. Not in the way that the world counts riches, but in the way that God counts riches. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 where he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Just like the first beatitude is a poverty in spirit, so this mourning is a spiritual mourning. This is not, oh, shoot, I bought a lottery ticket and it didn't pan out for me this week. Or, I wanted to buy that Lamborghini and somebody else snatched it out from under my nose. I don't know anybody who ever thinks that way. It's not that kind of mourning. And this is a mourning that is connected with repentance. It's a mourning that is connected with God's righteous kingdom. And it includes all mourning in the sense that we recognize that all sadness, all brokenness, all disappointments, all loss, all sorrows in this world ultimately are the result of sin. Not that specific sins lead to specific Consequences, so that if you are suffering in such a way, that means you must have sinned in such a way. Not that, but the world is the way that it is in terms of the sadness, in terms of sorrow, in terms of reason for mourning, ultimately because it is a sin-cursed world. And we mourn over that. Whoops good thing that wasn't filled with grape juice but we especially mourn over our own sin when a believer sins we we know that Jesus died for that sin we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus including our sins but we don't take our sin lightly. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It dishonors God. Uh, It invites the fatherly chastisement of God. We don't just skip through the rose garden in response to our sin. We mourn over our sin, and this is really illustrated vividly in Psalm fifty-one. Look there with me, Psalm fifty-one, written by David from his experience. By the way, is a member of the kingdom of God, not in the full sense in which Jesus uh, inaugurated it, because of the unique new covenant uh, presence. And indwelling in power of the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, this beatitude, David was familiar with. So notice this this mourning, but then God's comfort, that's because that's God's promised blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, uh, Jesus says, So notice the words of David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is coming from a person who takes his sin seriously. He's acknowledging that before God. And he continues in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David says, "I, I can't get rid of the thought of my sin. I'm under constant conviction. And by the way, if you compare Psalm 51 to Psalm 32, which both refer to the same event, that's David's sin, with Bathsheba and then his sin against Uriah, her husband, and conspiring for his murder. The the reason his sin was ever before him is that David apparently went for a period of time without confessing his sin. So he's under the weight of conviction of, of sin. And in verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Ultimately, even when we sin against other people, and that's usually what we do, ultimately, our sin is against God. And the reason why sin against other people is really sin against God is because other people are God's creatures too. Other people are God's image bearers. And so when we sin against our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters in the Lord, our family members, we're sinning against fellow image bearers of God and therefore we're sinning against God. But what David has in focus is God against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So here's David mourning over his sin. But then notice his hope. Remember, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A a citizen in God's kingdom, a Christian, is not someone who's constantly mourning, but we are mourning in light of hope. We're, We're mourning with a view towards comfort, and David did too. So verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There's this assurance from David that he will be cleansed. He will be forgiven. And in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And finally, in verse 17, he wraps this poem up, this song up, by saying, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is a mourner, a mourner over Sin, but with the eye of faith looking for comfort, the comfort that the gospel brings. So, blessed are those who mourn. Then, verse 5: blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? Meekness is basically humility coupled with gentleness. Humility coupled with gentleness. What does meekness look like? Well, it's not aggressive. It's not radiating an angry and vengeful spirit that pushes people away from you. It it is not this, like, nuclear danger warning sign, danger, danger, that keeps people away. Oh, don't go near brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or dad or mom danger but but instead meekness radiates a spirit of humility and gentleness that invites people to approach you and Jesus of course is our example this is how he described himself Look forward to Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30. We'll uh, open up this passage in the not-too-distant future, but let's just read it for now. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's meekness. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the meekness of Christ, his gentleness, his lowliness in heart, that is what attracted us to Jesus in the first place, isn't it? When, when we came under conviction of sins as as individuals. If if Jesus was this angry, bitter person, he would have scared us away. We would have gone someplace else with our guilt. But instead, because Jesus is the way that he reveals himself, gentle and lowly in heart, that's why we went to him and we found rest for our souls. And that's the promise, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a very interesting promise back in Matthew 5 and verse 5. Because we find the same kind of beatitude in the Old Testament, Psalm 37 and verse 11. Thanks, Adam. Sorry, that's okay. In Psalm 37, in verse 11, we read, but the meek shall inherit the land. What land was the psalmist referring to? The the promised land, the, the real estate in the Middle East known as Israel. But what is our promised land, brothers and sisters? And I want you to get this. What is our promised land? The new earth. And so Jesus takes the same beatitude from Psalm 37 and verse 11, and he doesn't change the beatitude itself, but he expands its blessing. Not just the land in Israel, but the whole earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. That is the ultimate destination of those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the gentle and lowly one and hard to approach. Now we are meek like Jesus is meek, and we will someday inherit the earth. That's a great promise. And then in verse 6, the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not just a hankering over the good old days but it's a deep longing in the soul for actual righteousness. That which is inherently right. That's what righteousness basically means. Right-wiseness. That which is inherently right. And why? Is it inherently right? Because true righteousness reflects the righteousness of God. We long for it. We hunger and thirst for it. And that's reflected in our prayers. In chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's hallowedness, his holiness, refers to his righteousness. And then the, the first petition is, your kingdom come. The second is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer of the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And what's God's promised blessing? End of verse 6. For they shall be satisfied. And this reminds us of the promise of God through the prophet Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. What a gracious invitation from the Lord to everyone who will hear. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Do do you hear the fourth beatitude there? This is the promised blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And so here is this Beatitude prophetically. And this is what we as fallen human beings do. We have this hunger and a thirst. We know there's something more to life than what we're experiencing. Even rich people know that. That's why so many rich people are on antidepressants, illegal drugs in some cases and I'm sorry to say, a lot of them even commit suicide because this world and the things in the world cannot ultimately satisfy the way that only God can satisfy, the way that righteousness that describes God and comes from God can satisfy And how does God satisfy us with righteousness? He does it through the gospel of his son. When we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sins and embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says God justifies us. He declares us righteous. And he does that through this double transaction. Our sins are imputed to Jesus. He he pays our debt, but we get the credit for his righteousness, which the Bible describes as the very righteousness of God. And the Apostle Paul described it in these terms, Philippians 3 and verse 9. Paul was willing to trade everything in order to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, he says, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And here's the dimension from the Beatitudes that sometimes we forget. Because we do talk a lot about justification, and the righteousness of God. But according to Jesus, righteousness satisfies us. It's meant to satisfy us. Ah, I'm filled, satisfied. It is enough. I have a good and righteous and perfect record with God because of my blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ah. Now I know the meaning of life. Now I know what uh, life in this earth is all about. It's about knowing him, knowing Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then, fifthly, Blessed are the merciful in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? It means to be generous, forgiving, compassionate. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how Jesus lived when he was in this world. He was merciful, generous, forgiving, compassionate. What's God's promised blessing to the merciful? For they shall receive mercy. That's interesting because... Um, This is the only Beatitude where the blessing seems to be in kind with the Beatitude. We'll receive mercy. Which means that this is a promise, like all of the Beatitudes are, but it's also a kind of warning, isn't it? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Oh, so then the unmerciful won't receive mercy. Well, yes. Look with me in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to get to this passage too. But in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35, we're not going to read the whole thing. But Jesus tells this parable. It's a story to illustrate the importance of forgiving somebody else. And in the story that Jesus tells there's, there's this king who loans a bunch of money to one of his subjects and that subject doesn't pay it back. And so the king has that man arrested and brought before him and that man, that debtor begs for mercy. Oh, king, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. And the king, being a merciful king, did. He had mercy on his subject, and he was released. But then it turns out somebody else owed that man a sum of money. And the the language that Jesus uses is something like this other guy, Owes the first man, let's say, a dollar. But that man owed the king a billion dollars. Just a, a mountain of difference. And this man who had been forgiven of a billion dollar debt would not forgive this other guy who owed him a dollar. But he has him. Uh, he wants to have him arrested, and he wants to have him punished, and he basically wants to squeeze that man until he coughs up that dollar that he owes him. And eventually, the guy who is uh, forgiven a billion dollars by the king is brought before that that king, and uh, we read it in verse thirty-two. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt And now listen to these words of Jesus. Here's the moral to the story. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know how to candy coat that, but that sounds to me like a warning from Jesus. If you say that you're a Christian, you believe the gospel, and Jesus has forgiven you of all of your sins, far beyond a billion dollars worth, an incalculable debt of sin to God, and the Lord has removed all of it, He's removed it from you as far as the east is from the west and he's cast it into the depths of the sea. And you say that you're so grateful and you're so thankful for God's forgiveness towards you. But then you don't forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. You don't have mercy on a fellow sinner. Then where is God's mercy in your heart? That's what Jesus taught. And that's the implication of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Brothers and sisters, may God help us to abound in mercy to others. Then, the sixth Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. So this is connected, I believe, uh, with the rest of the Beatitudes. These these are not these um, divisions with this impenetrable wall between them, but they're all describing the same thing by nature. And so think about verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so, this person who's pure in heart hungers and thirsts for righteousness within, and then they sincerely Endeavor to live that way. They sincerely endeavor to reflect the righteousness of God in their own lives. This is a hungering and thirsting for righteousness in our hearts that overflows into our lives. And we have a precursor of this in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Blessed are the pure in heart. And what's the blessing? For they shall see God. And how do those two go together? Because God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. God draws nearer to the righteous, but is not near to the wicked. Notice how the apostle John describes this, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, 3, sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Once again, already, we are God's children now, But not yet. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. How will we be like him? Will we all have brown or dark hair and brown eyes? Beards? No. Verse 3 And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And this is a reality that I fear is not mentioned enough within Christendom. Yes, salvation is by grace through faith apart from our works. Yes, God receives sinners. Jesus saves sinners, even the worst of them. But Jesus calls such sinners like us to repentance. He saves us not only from the penalty of our sin, but also from the power of sin, the dominating power of sin in our lives. And so he calls us to live a life of righteousness, and we need to remember that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Number seven, Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking means doing your part. Even going the extra mile to tear down hostility and contention that separate people having a heart and exerting effort to bring people together, to heal broken relationships, especially your own relationships. Notice that we must be peacemakers. It takes effort. We have to be intentional about it In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, we're told to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to pursue it. Romans 12 and verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. And so sometimes people are not going to be reconciled to us. Sometimes it's not possible, but we still have to try. We must pursue peace with all people. And notice the blessing for they shall be called sons of God. What's the connection there between being a peacemaker and being a son of God? Well, the connection is the ultimate son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate peacemaker. Because Jesus, in his person and work, has reconciled us to God. Jesus, in his person has brought us near to God. He has solved the problem of the wrath of God towards us. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2. For Jesus himself is our peace. He has reconciled us to God through the cross. And so, as Christians... We're so grateful for our great peacemaker that we gladly and uh, intentionally reflect that peacemaking spirit in our own lives, not being content to make enemies, but being quick to try to make things right when we can, when it's possible. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then number 8 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice that Jesus is very specific. He's talking about persecuting being persecuted for righteousness' sake, not suffering the consequences of our own sinful behavior. That's not persecution for righteousness' sake. And he's also not talking about suffering the consequences of our rudeness, of our abrasiveness, our our lack of meekness, if you will. If we're aggressive and angry and unmerciful, whoa, I did it again. I've never Wow. Can I have some more chips and salsa with that, sir? No, I'm fine, Adam. Very interesting. Where was I? <laughs> uh. I totally forgot where it was. Oh, right, yes. (laughs) Um, Right, so if we are rude, harsh, uh, not meek, not merciful, and then people push back on us, we, we can't count that pushback as persecution. Does that make sense to you? Christians should be nice. But sometimes we are nice. Sometimes we do just want to mind our own business. Sometimes we really don't want to rock the boat. But we still suffer persecution. That's because we live in a fallen world and this fallen world is at war with God. It is. Jesus himself said, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, has come into the darkness, but the darkness resists the light because their sins are Evil. In John chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus very bluntly says, the world hates me because I preached against their evil. And in John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The Apostle Paul added, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How do you like that? A 100%. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. All who desire to live according to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the Ten Commandments, which which basically are all one and the same. We'll, We'll get to that. If you want to live a godly life, do not expect a rose garden celebration. Do not expect a standing ovation from the world, but instead expect persecution. Jesus elaborates, what's our blessing? For theirs is the kingdom of God. And so we've come full circle. We're in this fallen world in which the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has dawned, but it's not all the way here. But ours is the kingdom of heaven, and that's our destination. That's our home. Those are our people. It's a place where righteousness is celebrated. It is not a place where evil is called good and good is called evil. then he elaborates in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so persecution sometimes entails being burned at the stake and drawn and quartered and imprisoned and tortured in different ways. But sometimes it entails slander, having our reputations ruined by lies. That's persecution. How should we respond? Not with anger, not with an AR-15. There's a time and place for those things, but not, not because we are being persecuted. How do we respond? Verse 12 Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. God knows what is going on. God sees. God knows the truth. He hears everything that is being said and he knows how you are bearing up under that persecution. He knows how you are bearing witness for Jesus. In that context. And he is not unrighteous or unjust to forget your, la- your labor of love. He will reward. And that reward is great in heaven. Amen. And you're not alone, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and that's also how they persecuted Jesus. Jesus was slandered. Jesus was reviled. Jesus was persecuted physically, horribly. But he did not revile in return. But he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And in going through his own valley of the shadow of death, he conquered death. He conquered sin. He triumphed over the devil. And he guaranteed the veracity of God's word. He guaranteed all of these blessings that are promised to us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. These are ours now, and they will be ours to an even greater extent on the new earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your righteous kingdom. And we thank you for the son of your love for Jesus and the the wisdom that came from his lips. We thank you for the glory of his person, the glory as of the only Son of God full of grace and truth. Would you help us to follow his example, to walk in his footsteps, to bring glory to his great name in this world through our attitudes, through our words, through our actions? And Lord, would you save many, even in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.